You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Happy Friday, Dave. Hey, Nick. How you doing? Fantastic. Sun is shining. It's a beautiful fall day, and we're talking about the economy, which yeah. uh, surprisingly is a fun thing to talk about because things are going pretty well. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting year, as was the year before. But uh, you know, we continue to live in interesting times, as the uh, the old Chinese proverb uh, that you are supposed to. Uh, use with your enemies goes, may you always live in interesting times. (laughs) There you go. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So yeah, we do uh, indeed. Stock market here as we uh, roll into uh, the end of the year is up 24.8% since January as as measured by the S&P 500. Yeah, I mean, absolutely just a phenomenal run for the stock market this year. And I think that surprised a lot of people. And I would also say, to some degree, scared a lot of people as well in terms of, you know, we had this major pandemic. And then if you go outside and you hear about what's going on and you see what's going on, it maybe doesn't translate to a 24% return on the stock market. Yet here we are. There's an old market cliche that a bull market climbs a wall of worry. Right. Right. And uh, we've definitely uh, we've definitely lived that over the last uh, two years, at least. And uh, plenty of things to worry about. Plenty of things catching the headlines that sound really negative. Meanwhile, the market just keeps on uh, chugging along. You know, why would that be? Why? Right. Right. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, what we've gone through with the pandemic, you know, the market has seen that as as a as a passing phenomenon. Meanwhile, you know, corporations are continuing to grow their earnings and uh, government response to the pandemic, of course, had a lot to do with with where the markets are now, making sure that uh, there was plenty of money flowing into the economy at a time when otherwise, uh, otherwise we might have seen things really grind to a halt. And uh, so now people have money to spend and are looking for things to spend it on. Yeah, absolutely. Ton of money to spend, and 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 part of the reaction is um, keeping interest rates low, which is why we've seen really kind of a boom in the refinance and, and allowing a lot of people to buy homes and do different things with low interest rates. So it does have a big, widespread impact, which is interesting. And you know, and one of the things that we've talked about before on this podcast that I'm sure has some merit in what we're seeing, but. From a technology standpoint, I think we really advanced a lot faster than what we would have had we not had the COVID shutdown. And so there's a lot of things that really accelerated, you know, almost, you know, some experts are saying, you know, we're 10 years further than we, we would have been had we not had it. And I'm sure that has an impact on business and profitability. It, uh, it forced us all to uh, figure out how to uh, work from home and rely on systems and, uh, you know, where before we just took it for granted that we had to commute to an office to do any work, kind of turned that on its head and sped up that cycle in a way mm-hmm. that yeah. uh, ultimately may be a good thing. For sure. As far as, uh, as where we're at, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the concerns, one of those worries now is, is where the stock market is compared to where corporate earnings are. And mm-hmm. as of yesterday, when I ran the charts that we're using for today, and those charts will be available on our on our website with the uh, link to this uh, podcast. While the market's up to almost twenty five percent, 
price to earnings ratios, which is how we measure value in the stock market, is sitting at about what's about 21.4. That means for every dollar you spend on a stock, it represents about $21 in earnings and what they expect companies are going to be generating down the road. And that's near a high. So to put it in perspective, the tech bubble back in 1999-2000, price-to-earnings ratios got up to 24.5. And that's kind of like the, the high watermark that we measure everything against. And so we're, we're not quite there, but the market, basically it means the, the market is op- optimistic <laughs> about, uh, about where earnings are headed and where growth is headed and expecting that those company earnings are going to catch up with it. Yeah, that's a great point. And we've already started to see some of that. I mean, if you're um, looking at this chart, you can see that we're actually off of um, some highs. Looks like we got just about to 24 and, and down to 21.4. And a lot of that is because the earnings have come in really well as, as a part of that. So, that, you know, obviously with a price to earnings ratio, there's two sides of it, right? The price or the earnings. And <laughs> so if the price goes down and the earnings stay constant, the PE ratio goes down and vice versa. Exactly. If, the, if the price stays constant and the earnings go up, the PE ratio goes down. So it's just a matter of what one of those things is driving that. So we've seen a little bit of a pullback from the high in 2020. But like you said, you know, 21.4 compared to the tech bubble of 24.5. So it wouldn't be, you know, unheard of for that number to go up or, you know, stay where it is or, or start turning down. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of options. It'll be interesting to see what happens. For context too, the historical average is 15 and a half. So we're we're well above average, but we're still below the peak by about the same amount. You know, when people come in and say, "Well, you know, stocks are expensive. We, you know, there's there's no room for them to go up." I think you you nailed it there. Yeah, price to earnings ratios will return probably to a more normal number. An optimist would expect that it would return to a more normal number because earnings rise, where a pessimist would uh, expect it to return to a more normal number because uh, the market goes down, you know, and in truth is it may be a combination of the two, right? Absolutely. And it probably the most likely is a combination of the two. And, and it's just interesting to me because, you know, this is a question that we get quite a lot right now, right? So mm-hmm. stock market's doing really well. I see my statements. The economy doesn't seem to be doing well. When's the bottom going to fall out? And, and my answer to that has been, could be next month, could be three, four years from now. We just have no way of telling what that looks like. And to play the game of trying to guess it is not in your best interest. If you look at historical earnings per share and compare those to where the market is at different times, what ends up happening is the market, whenever the market always seems too expensive. Right. If you, you know, and, and you can end up sitting on the sidelines and missing a whole bunch of, a bunch of growth that way. The, the tried and true practice is to not try timing, to make sure you have the right risk, right diversification, right mix of risky versus non-risky assets so that when inevitably there's always going to be a correction, right? Because that's kind of how the market works. And so that you're prepared for that and you're not surprised by it and you can ride it through. You're going to be way better off with that philosophy than trying to say, okay, things are expensive. So move everything conservative, move everything to cash until things calm down because if that's two or three years, you know, we, we could have made the same argument, you know, last year and then sat out this year and missed a 25% gain in the market. We've covered that, that idea quite a bit in past podcasts, but you know, it's never going to, it's never going to feel right. And that's back to that wall of worry, 
right? If, if, if people, if, if nothing feels like there's risk involved in the market, there's probably not going to be any return then either. And, you know, I think back to the, the definition of investing is to take a current risk in hopes of a higher return down the road. If it wasn't, if there wasn't that element of risk, if there weren't those things to worry about, there'd be no return. We'd, we'd make the 1.6%, you know, 10-year treasury rate if we were lucky. The second, the second slide in our, in our deck here kind of speaks to that too. You know, this year, the market's sitting here up year to date about 25%. And we had a, a minus five pullback from the peak in August-ish. And so far, you know, that, that was the worst of the year was a pullback of 5% there as uh, when China changed some policies around and inflation numbers started to not look as pretty. But the average year sees a market drop somewhere along the line of 13.5%, you know, and that includes, that includes really good years and really bad years. But, you know, that volatility is part of, part of what we sign up for. And uh, you really can't have you can't have that long term return of the markets around ten percent without also expecting every year you're going to have downturns in the middle. Right, and exactly. You know, to the point of being prepared for that. You know, that kind of fluctuation and, and making sure that you you know are, are diversified, but also you know you plan for the withdrawals that you need and how much risk that you're going to have because, like you said, every single year. You should expect at some point to be down 13% as far as your equity holdings go. And and a lot of what that means, and that's on average. So that means a lot of years it's going to be worse than that. You know, the big element in the economy right now that seems to be on everyone's mind. Well, there's a couple of things and they're they're related, but you know, uh, inflation is kind of the big question mark right now. Definitely the the second most popular question we get is what's going on with inflation and how's that going to affect me? As of when I ran these charts yesterday, the uh, consumer price index year over year change was about 6.2%, which is pretty much the highest it's been in two decades. Yeah. Which sounds horrible. But, you know, when you dig into that a little bit, first of all, the last two decades have been extremely low inflation scenarios and if you look at historical averages, you know that's on that six point two is on the high side, but it's not anything that's that's so alarming in the bigger picture. And the other part of it is we're still unpacking what part of inflation, what part, what how the different elements of inflation that we're dealing with right now are related to the pandemic and supply chain disruptions versus things that are likely with us for the long term. Yeah, that seems to be the big question in inflation is, you know, kind of where it's coming from and how is it going to stick around in terms of, you know, is it supply chain issues or is it more related to a core, you know, underlying thing going on with the economy? And it will be interesting to see what plays out. And I guess my guess would be there's a combination of both those things going on. So I don't think we're going to go back to super low inflation like we have in the past, but I certainly would expect those numbers to kind of come down back to a normal, more normal average in that, you know, two to 3% range. That seems to be the expectation is higher than what we've had over the last few years. But what we're seeing right now is still an effect of, you know, and we've talked about this over the course of the summer too, and, and that we're still dealing with supply chain disruptions and issues from mills being closed and 
you know, some of these things are already starting to see straighten out. Like the price of lumber is already started to come back to uh, more normal territory as uh, as people postpone construction jobs and more construction lumber gets produced because of the high prices drawing mills to do more. But, you know, some of these things like like the auto chip situation, they're going to take a little while to work out. Then other inflation that we're seeing like around wages with, you know, a lot of our frontline workers, you know, nurses, people that really took it, took the brunt of what we've gone through over the last 18 months, two years now are demanding more money to to work and and probably rightfully so. And also, you know, food service industries and things like that. We're going to see that sort of inflation, I think, stick with us. I mean, you can't drive down the road without seeing, you know, help wanted signs out there. And what that means is if you've got, you know, a shortage in the labor market, you're going to have to start paying more. And so in order, you know, if you're going to pay more for workers at McDonald's, then the price of the burger is going to go up and it's not going to come back down. Um, So that's one, definitely one side of it. But, you know, the other side, which is the supply, you know, there's a lot, a lot more money, like we talked about, because some of the government spending and stimulus and things like that. So there's more money out there. And because of the, it's harder to get things, those prices are going up. But eventually we would assume that those things would kind of equal out a little bit. There's still, while we're seeing unemployment come back towards more normal numbers here after, uh, after all the messiness last year. We're still not quite there, but we're also seeing a really low number in what's called the uh, the um, labor participation rate, and that measures the percentage of folks. You know, I believe it's under the age of sixty-two that they use. Might be under sixty-five that are working as opposed to not working. And that number right now is well below historic norms. It's around 62% right now. And I think it's usually in the 70s. And they are attributing that to a lot of people that just took early retirements last year or decided that whatever they were doing wasn't worth it. And, you know, one spouse staying at home versus uh, both going back to work, different scenarios like that. So that's pushing some of that inflation too. Are you a small business or a nonprofit that wants to market better? Of course you want to market better. Join heavy-hitting marketing agencies and experts at the Michigan Marketing Outstanding Brands Summit. All the big bosses will be there. 17 presentations on cutting-edge topics like brand dominance, how to make a logo that doesn't suck, figuring out what the heck SEO is, launching your own damn podcast, Upcoming annoying changes for social media, seen, um, creating it's, it's videos that slay, and so much more. Journal and a Win big prizes and take advantage of exclusive marketing right? training. Join the ranks of marketing bosses throughout Michigan in, and meet me, the Amy Zander, the reigning marketing masters of Michigan. Mark Friday, May 6, 2022 on your calendar. It's not too far away to start planning now. Follow Zedia Media on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for a chance to win tickets. Visit ZediaMedia.com for more information and to purchase tickets. That's Z-E-E-D-I-A-M-E-D-I-A.com. Your presence will be honored. Your absence will be you know, the way that sometimes doesn't happen without, you know, extreme sicknesses or near-death experiences that people 
kind of refocused on what they really wanted to do in life. And uh, yeah, so so that's driving some of it too. But you know, I, my point of view is that those things tend to even out. There's going to be plenty of for every for every person that resigns from a good job because it wasn't as fulfilling. There's someone else that's probably ready to uh, to try right. to step into that role. You know, if it, if it's a good job. So, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over, uh, over the next couple of years. My guess is that on the low end of the wage scale, we're going to see inflation and we probably need to see some inflation there. But, uh, you know, some of that middle stuff will, will sort itself out. Yeah, well, it's also interesting, you know, if you think of, you know, the lower end obviously is coming up, but the higher end is kind of staying stagnant because, you know, what we had is a lot of places who were hiring people. So let's say if you're out in California and you have a job in California and you obviously you need a wage premium to live, to have a living wage out in California. But because a lot of those people are working virtually and can work from anywhere and have decided to move out of California, that, you know, they're not getting that same wage premium because the cost of living to work remotely from Montana is way different than California. And so we're seeing some of that on the top level where a lot of these larger companies were paying more for people in a California that they're not having to do that now because essentially everybody's virtual and they can pull employees from anywhere. And so that's kind of leveling out some of that top level wage too. So that'll be another interesting thing to follow as the years go on and, and kind of what transpired out of the pandemic. Well, you know, when we talk about inflation too, it's important to remember that you can't have a growing economy without some inflation. Yeah. And and when the when the Federal Reserve and we're going to talk about interest rates here in a minute and how that relates, but when the Federal Reserve talks about their goals, it's to keep inflation around 2%, not zero. Right. Keep it around around 2%, 2% average, long-term average is their goal. And and that's because without with the only reason, well, it, it, the bottom line is the economy cannot grow without producing some inflation. And it, it's, it stinks if you're a consumer and you're paying more for things. But in terms of the overall economy, you know, you're shifting money from my pocket. You know, if I'm going out to dinner tonight and I spend more than I would have last year, it's not like that money just vaporizes. It just goes into someone else's pocket and then they're spending. And so the thing to keep in mind is that from an economic standpoint, that inflation is not necessarily a bad thing or as big a deal as it is on an individual level. And then the other thing, the financial planning concept to keep in mind is what keeps pace with inflation over time if the economy is growing? Stocks. The stock market. Thank you. Afraid you weren't going to come through for me there. (laughs) You know, but at the end of the day, inflation is bad for bonds and good for the stock market. So even if you're a conservative uh, investor overall, you need to have some money in the stock market just to keep pace with inflation on your portfolio, because that's where you get it back. If I'm spending more going out tonight, I can rest assured that if that create that inflation is is hurting me today, it should be helping me down the road when those people spend my money on other things and grow the economy. Exactly. And that goes back to kind of that original point that we made of, yes, the stock market is, you know, the PE levels are high, but you still need some stock exposure for the long-term growth of your portfolio. And just having that balance between stocks and less risky assets like bonds and, and having cash 
if you go, you know, if you went all in in cash right now because you were afraid of the stock market, inflation's gonna, you know, do a number on you. And vice versa, if you go all into the stock market when there is a correction, that's going to do a number on you as well. And so figuring out where you need to be from a balance standpoint based on what your goals are is extremely important right now. The other part of that whole equation uh, with inflation and the stock market is interest rates. And we have seen interest rates come up quite a bit over the last, over, over the course of the year, which... I mean, in percentage terms, in terms of the change is high, but the returns are still low. But right now, the the 10-year treasury sits at 1.6%, and the two-year, the short term, is at 0.52%. Yeah, which on the on the face of it doesn't seem like very much, but given where we were coming from, it, it's like you said, it's, it's quite an increase. And it's funny, I was in a meeting with a, a mortgage person today, and we had talked about that. Yeah, you know, interest rates are a little bit higher than where talking about a 30-year mortgage at like 3.6 to 3.8. But we think it's high because it's been as low as, you know, two and a half or a shade under three. And realistically, those are still really good numbers for a 30-year mortgage. Like amazing, you know, numbers that you probably won't see for another, you know, 20, 30 years. The Federal Reserve controls interest rates on the short end by what they charge, what banks charge each other for overnight lending. And the expectation right now, so the Fed funds overnight rate is at zero. The expectation right now is that we'll probably see four increases over the course of the next year to get it back close to 1%. And, you know, that's, those are, that's a pretty big move, but that's, that's what's built into the market. And remember, you know, backing up a minute ago, we talked about how inflation is bad for bonds. And part of that is because bond rates are fixed. And so inflation when inflation's higher, the money you're getting in the future for the bonds is worth less. But it's also part of the function of, you know, what are what alternatives are out there. And as the federal refunds rate goes up, the existing bonds out there look less attractive. But we don't right now with with four interest rate increases priced into the market expectations. That doesn't seem so dubious to me. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think the Fed's being real careful about how they want to attack in increasing interest rates. And, you know, keep in mind their number one charge has always been keeping inflation under control. And so, you know, I, I think they're they're doing a good job of of kind of taking it slow and see what see what, you know, happens. But ultimately those interest rates, you know, are gonna are gonna go up for a couple different reasons. One, because of inflation, and two, because if we, you know, if, something happens to the market, that's their number one arrow that they pull out of their quiver is being able to lower interest rates. Well, if interest rates are at zero, you can't lower them. And the lower they go, the less effect it has. So as as rates have changed this year, we have seen the yield curve get steeper, which means that um, you're paid more for using longer term investments or CDs and bonds, the farther out you go in time, the higher the rate. And that's actually a good sign for the economy. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the warning signs of a coming recession is when the yield curve gets inverted, which is, means basically that short-term investments can pay you more or as much as longer-term investments. And that's not the case right now. And that that points to the economy, the general feeling that the economy is healthy and growing, that uh, down the road rates will be higher and inflation will be at least under control. 
Yeah, like I said, um, definitely be something interesting to watch as, as far as their reaction and when they come out with that stuff. But yeah, like you said, definitely, you know, looking at interest rate increases. And, you know, the Fed's always good about kind of it being the like the world's worst kept secret um, because they don't you know they don't want any surprises when it comes to what interest rates are what their plan is with interest rates and they you know they give us a long leeway in terms of when they're going to increase them and usually it's like a small increase just to say hey by the way we really mean that we are going to do this and then they start going up a little bit more substantially so and that's all in response to making sure that the markets don't freak out there's a whole there's a whole industry of fed watchers out there in the media whose job is to parse every word that comes out of Powell and everyone else's mouth uh, and to try to get a clue as to where the markets are going to head because what they say and what they do move markets. Wasn't there, was it, I think it was like Alan Greenspan where they used to watch like what he was, like what briefcase he was taking into a meeting or something ridiculous like that. <laughs> yeah. And one of the, so one of the other things going on with the Fed, and we've got a slide in here that shows this is, you know, the, as Nick, as Nick mentioned a few minutes ago, they, they can only lower the overnight rate so much. The other thing that they do in times of crisis is buy bonds themselves and basically take them off the market. And what that does is creates artificial demand for bonds, and which in turn ultimately results in lower interest rates because bonds and bond yields and bond prices move opposite each other. So when the government steps in and buys more bonds, they drive the price up, which drives the yield down in a nutshell. Something that came out of 2008 when they were buying and, and but also, you know, buying subprime mortgages and even I think moved into some equity type stuff that they're purchasing now. So they, they have a pretty diversified balance sheet themselves um, as a response to, you know, obviously 2008, but also the pandemic. We've saw a lot of that as well. So here we are, as things are starting to recover, they've started to telegraph that they're, they're, they're tapering off. You've, you've probably heard of talking about tapering it. So not stopping buying more assets at this point, but slowing down the amounts they've been buying. They currently hold about 8.7 trillion in assets. The federal reserve does. And so um, just to give you an idea of the sheer amount, sheer volume that they control. But so as they slow down their purchases, that allows interest rates to rise a little bit too. And a dramatic increase from where we were sitting in 2008 at 905 when we started, you know, and from to go from 905 to 8.7 trillion. They've been, been doing a lot of work in, in the last... 14 years or so, which has been interesting. This chart of the Federal Reserve balance sheet that we're both looking at right now, it'd be nice to juxtapose stock market chart on top of it because they've got labeled on here when the Fed started to slow down their buying after the financial crisis. And I remember there being a sharp correction in the stock market around that time that they actually called the taper tantrum. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, the idea this time around is to like, let us all know that that's happening so that the stock market doesn't overreact. And just keep in mind, the reason they want to let rates float higher is because higher rates will slow the economy and then inflation down a little bit. And while that little bit of inflation that we talked about is a good thing, out of control inflation creates problems, creates violent swings in the economy. We've talked a lot about obviously the U.S. stock market and the bond markets. Um, another thing that obviously we're watching is uh, international markets. 
developed uh, international markets had a pretty decent year at 9.5%, but we kind of still, we still sit in that spot. I know we've had these conversations before around why should I be investing internationally when the US market's doing 24% and international markets are doing nine and a half. So yeah, less, less than half the return in the international markets right now, uh, year to date than what we've seen in the US. So my big thing is looking back at valuations, right? We were talking about how the U.S. stock market is near the top, you know, kind of high average uh, for for where its price prices are compared to corporate earnings. The U.S. stock market is at that point because it's outperformed everything over the last couple of years, and at some point, the value. You know the fact that the the inter and I wish I I, do, I don't have the PE ratio for the international markets handy, but it's 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 below average because their returns haven't matched ours. So you know if you were looking at what's on sale out there in terms of stock purchases, it's in international stocks, not in the U.S. necessarily. Yeah. As portfolio managers, we always have to remember that there's more risk there too, because on top of on top of the normal economic risks, you bring in political risks, you bring in currency risks and other things too. So we need to keep it in perspective. But you know, to answer your question, why do we own international? Well, at some point, at some point we're going to see international outperform. And the more the longer it underperforms, the longer it's going to outperform. Right. Absolutely. And the same principle applies to, you know, why do we own stocks when we know that they're, you know, a little bit more expensive than they are on average? You know, the same reason why we buy international and U.S. is we, we don't want to make a judgment on which one's going to do better. And these things tend to be cyclical. And so by having both in the portfolio, we get, you know, similar long-term returns, but we also get a reduction in risk. And that's that diversification factor. Yeah, we emerge. We should just kind of as a side note to emerging markets as a subset of the international markets is actually negative for the year a little bit. Most of that is because of poor performance out of China as they um, they changed regulations around a few of their housing companies and signaled that uh, maybe Communist Party wasn't as happy with some of the way the uh, capitalist entities in China behaved lately. Yeah, and if you look at you know China, obviously a big factor, but you know if you look at the the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, you know when you look at Brazil, obviously hard hit by COVID, the pandemic, and you know trying to figure out what's going on there, and a lot of the supply chain issues and you know things like that, I'm sure have hurt these other countries as well, and so. I think that's not, you know, unsurprising, but just like we said about international developed markets, you know, this is a good opportunity as far as the valuations and the risk to, to have a piece of your portfolio for sure. I uh, think we've about covered it. Market's done well. Inflation continues to be a concern. We're still not certain what the health situation is going to be as we move forward here. It seems to be, it seems like it's not getting better, but we're starting to learn how to cope. I guess would be my point of view. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we, we say it all the time and it's kind of boring and, you know, we don't, you know, have any great tips of, hey, put all your money in this. But, you know, at the end of the day, as we've seen before, there's bad stuff that happens all the time as far if you go back and, and look at the charts and look at all the things that happened, there's things that happen that, you know, 
derail or affect stock market performance. But at the end of the day, having a diversified portfolio over the long run is really the best solution as far as growing your wealth and, and managing your portfolio and, and making sure you adjust that and the risk towards your goals and, and what your investment objectives are. But you know these things come up quite often and the market is very resilient and usually figures it out and moves ahead. And I think that's what we've kind of seen this last, you know, since the pandemic hit in 2020. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Very good. Very good. The one thing I agree with Jim Cramer on, diversification is the only free lunch. So we'll stick with that. <laughs> there you go. I love a good free lunch. So as always, if you have questions on this or any questions um, related to investing, feel free to reach out to info at srbadvisors.com. Like Dave said, we will put these uh, charts up in the show notes um, for you to reference should you wish. And with that, Dave, I bid you a good afternoon. You as well. Have a good weekend. I'll talk to you later. Gather round and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.